back to the PFC podcast. The views and opinions you are about to hear are the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of anyone else. Now on to the podcast. Welcome back to the PFC podcast. This is Dennis and today we're with our, we're with our favorite uh, trauma doc. How are you doing, Mark? I'm doing well. Thanks, Dennis. Good to be here. So uh, let's just jump into it. So what I'd like to know is how do I optimize my patient for, for surgery? And so what we'll do is same question, but uh, two different uh, scenarios, two different contexts. Um, what, what do I need to take into account when I'm making my decision, whether this patient coming to me or maybe I've been holding on to them if they're, if they're too sick or they're well enough to go and do a, either a big debridement or a big surgery. Right. Uh, one of my professors, uh, he once, uh, used to say, um, when determining a pa- uh, determining if a patient needs surgery, you have to ask, do they need surgery? What incision are you going to make? And what are you likely to find? And I think that works great, you know, in your role threes where you have all kinds of capabilities available. But before you make that decision, um, you have to figure out what are they likely to survive when it comes to, you know, the austere uh, type of environments that uh, your medics um, and you uh, work in. And so, if you cannot get the patient to a place where they can get some type of definitive control of bleeding um, or, or, or correction of whatever is making them uh, as critically ill as there is, it may not be the best use of resources. And, uh, and so um, it is not uncommon from time to time to hear about some heroic measures that were made in an austere condition only for the patient to die later when they got to either a roll two or a roll three, meaning somebody heroically did a thoracotomy, clamped the aorta, they got control of their airway, uh, but after an hour ride to, uh, to some type of uh, definitive or, or more resource-rich uh, place, they unclamp the order, the patient dies immediately. And so um, these are the things we want to stay away from if possible. And so who are, who are the candidates uh, for an operation? And, and I think the first thing is to figure out is, you know, when can you get to something a little more definitive and who's going to, to be uh, taking the patient, taking over the patient's care the rest of the way. So the extreme might be your J-Mouse where, you know, they descend upon a patient in the most austere of environments and, uh, and whisk them away. And I think they kind of get carte blanche because they know exactly uh, what they have and where they're going to. And it's a very streamlined, um, way of, of, um, caring for that patient. But what about the 18 Delta that rolls up uh, after an IED or um, a bad patrol, something like that, and your patient has been uh, cared for in uh, the, you know, the worst of environments, they're cold, they're probably coagulopathic, they're in hemorrhagic shock, 
maybe, maybe, you know, on the borders of septic shock, can this patient endure an operation? Well, it depends what that operation would be. An amputation, probably, right? Uh, uh, a massive debridement, uh, maybe not. A massive debridement, you know, could could bring on a fair amount of phlebotomy in the form of coming across vessels in a coagulopathic situation where uh, where um, you can't control all this, the uh, bleeding. And, um, and so this would not be one. And then a patient who's under resuscitated uh, without uh, blood products, uh, that is a big, big problem. And these are the patients we want to avoid taking to the operating room, uh, period. So, that being said, once you're in the operating room, you know, that's not necessarily a place for anesthesia to catch up. I, I come across that from time to time when I'm taking um, some other folks, some other surgeons who are placed in an austere uh, environment, and uh, they get the patient to the operating room, and they're waiting for the go-ahead by anesthesia while the patient's bleeding. That's not the right answer. Uh, the only way to stop the bleeding is for the surgeon to move forward and get control of what's bleeding. And then once you have hemorrhagic control, then anesthesia can potentially, quote-unquote, catch up. Yeah, and that can be, I'm sure, a challenge in itself, uh, considering how drugs affect differently in uh, patients with uh, you know, bad hemodynamics and things like that? Sure. Yeah, bad cardiac output uh, and bad cardiac output. You're not going to circulate the drugs. Uh, hyperdynamic, these drugs, you know, they may even chew through those drugs uh, quite quickly. And it is not going to be a well-balanced anesthesia and surgical uh, effort. Uh, it's going to be... Uh, going to be ugly. It's going to be unpleasant. Um, but that being said, we, we've talked about this in our PFC courses, you know, pain's bad. You want to control pain as much as you can, but the pain itself shouldn't kill somebody. Uh, the pain itself, uh, although we don't welcome it or uh, approve of it, um, you, you got to get to the bleeding. And once, once you stop the bleeding, then you can, you know, take a pause and and uh, try and, and uh, you know, anesthetize them or give some form of analgesia to get them through the next, next step in the uh, resuscitative and surgical uh, phase. You mentioned um, time a few times. Uh, I guess, is there, is there an upper limit? I mean, does it have more to do with the patient or is there a time period that lapses where it's like it's not even, it's not even worth it? Well, uh, so, so no, there's not a certain minute that I can think of, if I understand your question correctly. Um, we, we know, uh, you much better than I do, that sometimes our efforts at surgery and resuscitation uh, are no longer done for the patient themselves, but for the morale, the morale of the team, the morale of the village, um, and so forth. And so. Um, Despite um, some poor outcomes, uh, we need to continue the resuscitation or even the surgery um, to further our efforts either in the mission itself or uh, the morale of the team. 
That being said, from a pure surgical standpoint, it's my opinion uh, that um, you keep going until the patient declares himself. That's not to say you operate needlessly on a patient that could benefit from some resuscitation, some permissive hypotension, things like that. Those are the those are the things. Those are the the um, issues we want to weed out during today's discussion. But but there is value in uh, pushing forward when it may seem like um, you're not you you're not effectively uh, treating the patient. You just you just don't know. Just like uh, when you train or you go through uh, selection and so forth, you just don't give up until, you know, the bell is rung, the, uh, the whistle's blown, whatever, you, whatever analogy you want to use. Um, if you have that patient's life in your hands, don't stop trying. Mm-hmm. I, I don't. Uh, there's a point when, when the heart gives out and the patient says, systole, they don't have a pulse. There's no effort to breathe. Um, there are no neurologic signs. When you're in an austere environment, you don't have the luxuries of all these fancy monitors. Um, you don't know, uh, you know, when that patient's body is going to quit. And uh, and when working on, you know, a, uh, a special operations uh, team member, um, their physiology is much different and can tolerate much more than than the average person. Mm. Um, you, know, you, you mentioned getting, making sure you get control of the bleeding. Um, you know, definitely understood. Let's say you know we are, we have been able to control the bleeding. It's just that he's very shocky, uh, he's cold, and uh, you know we're we're making some headway. You know, we've given you know we've given our uh, a unit of blood. We have our little uh, HPMK on him, but he's still shocky. He's still cold. Uh, is it? Is this something that you're going to want to fix first, or, or do you want to at least take them into surgery and get definitive control of that uh, the hemorrhage? I, I guess it depends on what the the injury itself really is, right? There's. There's surgical bleeding, and then there's um, then there's active uh, blood loss from unnamed vessels, for instance. Mm-hmm. Right. So surgical bleeding means usually it's a named vessel, uh, and the bleeding is ongoing, and it can be identified readily. Versus, say, large surface areas that are bleeding that there is no surgery you can do. Now, what do those look like? Those often look like where areas of the body are denuded, meaning super bad abrasions where the muscles exposed, some bones exposed, and it's bleeding and bleeding and bleeding. Or scalp injuries where you can lose tremendous amounts of blood, uh, but there's no name vessel. They're just the, the face and the neck are so well vascularized. Um, these areas can bleed and bleed and bleed. And we've all seen, or at least many of us, your listeners have seen, where arteries, big and small, have stopped bleeding, um, only to bleed later when the patient's either rewarmed or they're no longer in spasm. And so um, you, the named or unnamed vessels uh, can do that based on the type of injury. 
So the blood loss from large exposed areas of smaller blood vessels that you can lose tremendous amount of blood, you know, generally direct pressure is going to be the answer for that. Some of our topical hemostatic agents are excellent at doing that as long as the patient is not coagulopathic versus the patient with larger vessels, larger name vessels. These need surgical control. They need it as soon as possible because when that patient is prepped and ready for the operation and sometimes just before, they will open up. The spasm will stop. These are typical of arteries, right? Arteries are much more muscular. Um, when the spasm is over, these will, will bleed. And then when you warm the patient up and they vasodilate, they'll bleed uh, from that as well. So the surgical control of these is absolutely imperative. And surgical control just basically means you're clamping or tying something off. This is not the time to do bypasses and so forth. This is just the time to get some type of control. Right. Hence damage control surgery. And damage control surgery, and and just a short plug, uh, and and some concepts here, uh, antibiotics. So when you have these large massive wounds, it is important to get antibiotics on early. The sepsis can kill them late. We're all aware of that, um, but also understand that you're probably underdosing these antibiotics. Uh, when you give them to these patients, their volume of distribution has dramatically changed. The circulation has dramatically changed. They're going to lose the concentration of antibiotics as they start bleeding again. And so it's not atypical uh, to dose these patients two to three times higher uh, during these periods of, of stress and, and blood loss. Hmm. Okay. And getting those antibiotics on early will make a difference, not immediately, but uh, but certainly in the mid to long-term range. So um, kind of same situation as far as we want to take somebody to surgery, um, but it's very austere, you know, um, you know, very right. limited resources. Um, you know, help is, you know, quite a ways away, right? So we're kind of faced with, do we do this or we do not do this? Um, what other things, other than just stability of the patient, what other things do we need to take into consideration? Certainly. So um, it, it, it really comes down to March, right? Mm-hmm. And so so the blood loss, making sure that the airway is, uh, we're going to, we nearly exhausted our discussion on blood loss for now. Yeah. So uh, ventilation um, is uh, is important, obviously. Um, now, if the patients, when I talk about ventilation, I don't mean just CO2. I mean uh, just gas uh, delivery and removal. So um, so it's okay for your patient to be hypercarbic. Uh, what we're talking about is regulating their pH uh, so that they, do, they can maintain a blood pressure. What we're talking about is... Um, is uh, you know maintaining some, maintaining some degree of gas exchange at the cellular level since that is what defines shock, and uh, and so um, having having some form of definitive airway if you're thinking of taking your patient to the operating room is is uh, key. Now that definitive airway doesn't necessarily mean a tracheostomy; it just could mean that you're you know you have a bag valve mask and you're able 
to maintain that airway, say with ketamine versus, you know, uh, a narcotic, uh, a traditional narcotic like fentanyl or, or potentially morphine. We try and stay away from morphine in our bleeding patients uh, just due to its histamine release and potential to cause hypotension, which is very confusing in your hemorrhagic shock patient. Fentanyl doesn't do that, certainly not to that degree. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so uh, the airway, and then we talked a little bit about temperature uh, and making sure that our patient is as close to euthermic as possible. Um, you know, are there protective mechanisms in your patient who's hypothermic? Well, if they're really, really, really super cold, uh, yes. Uh, but um, if they're just cold, no, that's not protective and not helpful. And uh, and so um, there's issues with potassium, for instance, with hypothermia. Um, as, as potassium goes down when they're cold and they get rewarmed, potassium levels rise. Um, so there's... There's some metabolic issues uh, that you'd like to optimize. So, uh, in brief, we hit we hit uh, control of hemorrhage. Um, we're talking about a definitive airway of some sort, and um, and then some of the metabolic issues that we can encounter, uh, keeping our patient from being too acidemic, acidemic actually. Um, and uh, and so they can tolerate uh, an anesthetic for surgery, whether that surgery be a debridement, um, removing some obvious foreign bodies from a from an IED, for instance, or uh, a bad gunshot wound or some type of improvised weapon uh, that's covered in stool uh, that's, that they're impaled with. Um, all of these patients warrant some type of surgery if they can, if they can get you know, the, the surgery they need and then the place they need to recover because the surgery itself is, is not always uh, that elegant. Uh, but uh, getting the patient through the surgery and getting through their um, their injuries, that's that's really what, what this is all about. Mm-hmm. And that takes a lot, a lot of skill, a lot of resources, a lot of knowledge and and a ton of care. Right. A ton of will. I mean, to be honest, I think about some of the, the surgeries that we've been trained on. Um, it's like hard to even fathom what really resources do you need? I guess, um, you know, how much blood do I need? You know, uh, you know, I understand, you know, I need a scalpel. I need some clamps, uh, some suture material. Um, you know, that stuff, that's pretty easy. But as far as like all the you know, how much oxygen do you need? You know, um, how much drugs do you need? Uh, um, you know, blood products, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, those things add up really quick. And like, um, you know, is there any kind of go by as far as, you know, how do you even, how do you even prepare? Well, um, I hate to do this to you, Dennis, but I'm going to put it back on you. I mean, the reason why there's an 18 Delta and a six day whiskey and a six day whiskey one is because you're trained to uh, see and deal with this. And the reason why there's a battalion surgeon is because, you know, they've seen a lot and been through a lot and they have some experience as well. And sometimes it's just a hard call. Uh-huh. 
It's, uh, you know, this one's going to be expectant. And uh, taking it the burden off of the medic or the first responder, if you will, um, because how do you how do you have lunch and breakfast and go through basic or seer school with somebody and then say we're done? I I, I can't imagine making that call. Um, and sometimes that's the onus of you know a higher echelon to say, look, enough's enough. We've got, you know, multiple patrols left and there's only so much blood in our refrigerator that we can send you, um, you know, do your best. Right. So, so I don't know, Dennis, uh, you guys who live this every day, um, have an inkling. And even at that, there is some emotion that's tied to it. Um, and, uh, and, you and I are surrounded by these anecdotal cases of somebody going through 200 some units of blood and lived. Uh And yet there was somebody who, you know, physiologically was an equal to that person and they didn't get that blood and maybe their injuries were as bad. Maybe they weren't nearly as bad, but all the effort went into that one soldier, you know, kind of like we were talking about earlier, you know, there's, there's some, things about life that are just plain unfair. And so um, deciding whether this is an aortic injury or a cable injury, um, what's what's bleeding inside the box, those are things that you can't necessarily do. But if you look at how quickly they deteriorate or you look at some of the things that happen when you change their physiology, um, that'll tell you, that'll give you another data point as to whether you call it or you push forward. So your patient who seemingly has a blunt injury, who's hypotensive, lift their legs up, give them, give them a double transfusion. Right. Right. And if they respond to it and they stay, uh, stable, they're, they're going to be abnormal, but stable, abnormal. That's the person I would push through. But if you give them a, a double leg lift and they transiently become, uh, I don't want to say normal tensive, but, but their physiology improves. Maybe their heart rate goes down and their blood pressure goes up, but then it falls again and their legs are still up. This may be a patient you may want to call early yep. and, and make them expectant while somebody else, you know, can afford uh, a bigger resuscitation. Right. Yep. And that, I mean, um, you know, that's what telemedicine is for. And it's definitely, um, not something that's really trained, I don't think, very well. Like, it's definitely gone over, and there's classes on it. Um, but nothing nothing really prepares you for that decision. And, um, you know, that's why you need to, I think, reach out to, reach out to your docs, reach out to telemedicine to help some, have somebody who's separated from the situation, uh, you know, tell you, hey, this is this is what you're gonna have to do, um, because you know we don't train to lose. Um, you know everything is win constantly, and it's very hard to s- kind of flip that switch to say now oh, this one I'm okay to lose. Um, you know that's not in our DNA, so I would definitely suggest you know reaching out to somebody, somebody like Mark who has done this day in and day out. Um, you know, making those life uh, life changing decisions for some kind of expert guidance. 
I was I was with some folks uh, earlier and um, earlier this week, and uh, I think there's there's uh, there's a lot in what you said, and there's so, there's a lot in what you didn't say, and living with that guilt. Uh, this is a slight offshoot of our topic here, but living with the guilt, um, feeling that you have sentenced your patient to life or death, meaning uh, you realize that they're expected and there's nothing left you can do, has taken an immense toll on, on all soldiers. And, um, and I think having that person, whether it's the battalion surgeon or you know, somebody higher than you help you make that decision that enough's enough. Um, I hope from a, a psychological standpoint, uh, our, our good folks who are, are doing all of these uh, things um, understand that it's, it's not, they didn't fail. Yeah. They may feel like a failure because they just lost a brother or a teammate, uh, but that's, that's not necessarily their failure. It's just bad situation. So um, I don't want to get off topic, uh, but but in part it is on topic in that uh, you're going to lose some folks and it's going to hurt. And it's that hurt that drives uh, you guys um, to do better, to learn more so that the next one doesn't have to uh, be lost. Uh, but but this is the cruel world we're in and the cruel world, world we're fighting for. <clears throat> so share that burden. Yeah. Well, it got dark, that got uh, dark really quick. Um, so yeah. let's uh, try and uh, shine some more light on this. Um, if we can kind of summarize uh, what we talked about, you know, receiving a patient, you're going to have to look at what are, what are their injuries? What resources do we have? How long until we can get them out? If you can get them out at all, um, just to kind of get a get your arms wrapped around. Okay, is this possible or not? If so let's, let's. Okay, it is. Yeah, let, let's also look at it a different way, because I think we're trying to simplify this, and I don't know that uh, I've necessarily simplified um, it. Injuries to the chest. Okay, mm-hmm. injuries to the chest. Uh, you know those are often more lethal, uh, at least more, uh, acutely lethal than injuries to the abdomen, which can be more acutely lethal than injuries to the extremities. Okay. So if you're, if you're looking for a quick and dirty, think of, think of it that way through and through, uh, unilateral, uh, chest injuries, you know, injuries to the lung, Mm -hmm. The farther they're out from the mediastinum, the more likely the patient can survive, right? So if you threw, shoot somebody gets shot through the chest and it, the, it's a single gunshot wound, uh, which I, you know, we may or may not know, but if it's a through and through hole in the lateral part of the chest, or even if it's a one, one hole in the lateral part of the chest, the patient has a reasonable chance to survive. In other words, um, it's, it's, I don't want to say rare, but not all patients with a hemothorax need surgery. And so think of it that way versus the mediastinum, right? Right dead center in the chest, but beneath the sternum or at the base of the neck, these tend to be lethal. And these are the ones that I would say, okay, uh, you're going to give a go at it and you're going to do it for a short period of time. Okay. 
the amputations, the reason why our our uh, soldiers are surviving these are tourniquets. So that buys you a lot of time, and they may lose uh, parts of their limb. They may lose their hands and wrists and elbows and so forth, and even shoulders. But they they can make it, and so. Uh, these are the patients that you may not consider going to the operating room, but just kind of keeping them warm and keeping them prepared versus the gunshot wound or the blast injury directly to the chest or, or neck. Um, the, the abdomen is truly unknown. There is so much going on in the abdomen. It's kind of like the neck, but there's a lot more space. Um, you don't always have to operate immediately on the abdomen, but I don't know that it can wait uh, you know, a period of days and it may not even, you may not even be able to wait for a period of hours. Uh, if it's a bad colon injury, that sepsis is going to, is going to set in and the patient's going to declare themselves one way or the other. And you can't really, other than a JMAO, I don't expect a medic to, to do a laparotomy and resect liver and colon and so forth. They may be able to tie off the colon. Uh, which is not an unreasonable expectation, at least for the 18 deltas that I've had the honor of working with, um, and and be able to decrease the amount of contamination. Right, that's the mm-hmm. second principle in, in right. doing these laparotomies for trauma. The first being control bleeding. Um, so, so that's not an unreasonable expectation for an 18 delta who knows that there's going to be somebody on the receiving end in a short period of time for that for that patient. So I just want to provide a little bit of clarity, a little, you know, a, a type of barometer for who who they can, who they might be able to predict needs an operation or not. Right. And I'm, you know, I probably we, you know, I probably should have uh, brought that up that point early in this, but through the magic of radio, you can edit that yep. into the right spot. Too easy. Um, so. You know, as far as going through deciding who should get it, who should not get it, um, resources wise. Um, and then when it comes time to, you know, we have the resources, this person's a good candidate, you know, just making sure they're optimized, I guess, to the best of your ability, you know, hemodynamically, um, temperature, you know, anything that you can do to kind of roll back that lethal triad uh, to the best of your ability and the time available. Um, because if you're having to chase down bleeders and things like that, you really don't have a lot of time. And drain, 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 yeah. if possible. Okay. Um, oh, is there, uh, is there any other uh, things we need to consider? Because this is a pretty complicated topic and it's a podcast, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um. It is. I think. I think we've opened Pandora's box to probably more more things to talk about and how they interrelate. Uh, but I think it's. I, I don't. You know, my uh, thumbnail sketch of what we are going to talk about and kind of coming up with ideas. I think we've we've hit the major topics. Um, and and unfortunately, uh, a lot of it is just boots on the ground, and and the emphasis you made on uh, telecom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you very much, Mark. Thank you, Dennis. Always a pleasure. That's it for today's podcast. Be sure to go to our website, www.prolongfieldcare.org. Find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram. 
Subscribe and stay on the bleeding edge of combat medicine. This is Dennis for the PFC Podcast. Our boy is waiting there for you.